creating an AI that controls many aspects of our lives is exactly the same kind of problem. You engineer something and you try to make sure that in the process of functioning, uh, that thing doesn't kill you. People think this is a different problem because they implicitly think that an intelligent computer is some kind of conscious being with an inner life and emotions and agendas of its own. And that's exactly what I deny. An intelligent computer will always and ever be a mechanism, just a very, very, very large, a very, very, very complex mechanism whose inner workings we may not be able to understand. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where I keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, my guest is Bernardo Castrop, who has an impressive background, which includes writing 10 books, working for CERN, the world's largest and most advanced particle physics laboratory, and holding a PhD in both computer engineering and philosophy. Now, during these years honing his unique expertise, Bernardo developed his ideas of what he calls analytical idealism, which builds on the philosophy of metaphysical idealism. In the simplest terms that I can try to explain it now, Bernardo basically believes that there is no physical world, no material reality, but rather that all of existence is experiential, a mental construct that we give form to through our perceptions. We explore this complex idea in much more detail in the first half of this episode, and then for the second half, we discuss the implications of this worldview on aspects of society such as innovation, technology, and culture. And this includes exploring why Bernardo believes that it is impossible for an artificial intelligence to ever gain consciousness. While Bernardo does a fantastic job of explaining his ideas, I am going to warn listeners right now that this is a very philosophical and potentially challenging conversation, as it demands questioning a lot of our foundational ideas about reality and consciousness. And now that you've been warned, I'll say no more, so everyone, please welcome to the podcast, the brilliant Bernardo Castro. You know, one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you, even though a lot of your work these days really deals with philosophy, I think there's a lot of really interesting ways in which it relates to technology and specifically artificial intelligence as well. But before we go too far down that road, what I would love if you could do is just provide us with a bit of your brief background for yourself and maybe how some of those experiences um influenced your beliefs and analytical idealism and what analytical idealism is? Okay, my, my background is technology. I have a doctorate in computer engineering. I've worked at um, CERN in Switzerland with the data acquisition systems of the, the new generation of detectors that are online right now. Um, I've been in chip design, chip manufacturing for 15 years. Um, I've my master's thesis was on uh, artificial neural networks, so AI. Um, and this stuff did influence my philosophy a lot. I mean, I've been a philosopher since I was a kid, degree or no degree, because I've always thought about the big questions of life and the universe and everything. 
Um, but uh, once you start doing AI very seriously, uh, both professionally and as a hobby at home, it's unavoidable to ask the question if I can make this thing intelligent, as intelligent as a physicist in, in sort of uh, analyzing the data and making the right discriminations of the data, um, what is missing for me to make it conscious? Um, what is missing for me to be able to say that the data processing in this thing is accompanied by experience, just as the data processing in my brain. And, uh, and I thought very seriously about that, almost obsessively for a couple of years until I realized that I was making all kinds of wrong assumptions that led me to, you know, to be basically stare, uh, knock against a wall, a wall of my own doing. And then I backtracked and and then that, that's my philosophy. It, uh, it arose from this backtracking to the last step in which I thought I was going in the right direction before I took a wrong turn. And then reconstructing my worldview from that point on in a way that um, fits with the evidence and, and frankly fits with reason because physicalism just contradicts reason, let alone the evidence, if you ask me. So did you hit that wall in your work on AI? And then was that what caused you to then pursue your um, doctorate in philosophy? Um, I would say it was the trigger for more mm -hmm. serious, serious philosophical thinking, but I've been thinking about philosophy all my, all my life. And no, it was not the trigger to have a second doctorate. Uh, the trigger for that was that um, I was um, some people offered ad hominem criticisms uh, of me. I don't think every ad hominem is a fallacy, by the way. I think some ad hominem are fair and applicable. And that ad hominem was, why should we listen to you? Your PhD is in computer, computer science, not philosophy. And I thought, that's valid. It, it's a valid thing. It's, a, it's ad hominem. It has nothing mm -hmm. to do with my argument, but with my qualifications. But I thought it's appropriate enough. And then for three years, I started writing a, literally a dozen papers in ma no, major philosophy journals, physics journals, psychology journals, um, and then got myself a second PhD from uh, the, the Netherlands' best uh, humanistic university. So I, so I watched your six-part course i think it's six part maybe seven part course on analytical idealism and i know there's a lot to say so <laughs> i won't try to have you do it all now but could you try to give us maybe a brief overview of what your ideas what ideas you arrived at while at university and since then yeah so we have this notion that um what really exists what really has standalone reality are physical entities they are out there and that mind somehow supervenes on it. In other words, mind is a byproduct, a, a side effect of physical organization in the form of the brain. Um, what I put forward is the following. There obviously is an external world beyond our individual minds. That's an empirical datum, I think. Now, I, ca I cannot change the world merely by wishing it to be different. It doesn't matter how hard I meditate. Otherwise, there would be no war in Ukraine right now. I guarantee you that. So there is a world that is objective from my point of view, and it's outside my individual mind. But to say that that external world is non-mental 
uh, goes too far and it creates all kinds of problems. It creates a different ontic category, non-mentation or physicality, and then tries to reduce mentation to it, which is impossible. We call it the hard problem of consciousness. So what I put forward is that the world is mental. It's not in your mind alone. It's not in my mind alone. It's transpersonal, but it's transpersonal mental states, which when we observe, in other words, when we make a measurement of these transpersonal mental states out there, uh, we create an internal representation of them that we call perception, the stuff we see. So the physical world, which is the world of perception, is an internal cognitive representation of the actual world out there, which is mental, not my mental processes, but transpersonal mental processes. Is is the world out there, does it have any material aspect to it that we're just layering on top of with our perception? Or is it 100% perception and consciousness in your in your mind? Perception is our internal cognitive representation of the world out there. We have no direct access to the world as it is in itself. Uh, it's, a, it's a set of noumena in Kantian terminology, while all we have is the phenomena, is how we represent the world, how the world presents itself to us upon observation. Now, physicality is even a step removed from that. Physicality, in other words, the quantities, mass, charge, momentum, frequency, amplitude, spin, geometrical relationships, and so on and so forth. These are descriptions of perception. And perception is a representation of the world. So physicality is not only one, it's two steps removed from the world. As a description, it's very important. It allows us to not only describe the world, but to model it and predict how it will behave. But that prediction is based upon the paradigm of inner representations. It's not based on what the world actually is in and of itself. So there is still some something there that isn't just consciousness, but we're just not perceiving it correctly, or we're not perceiving the truth of it, we're perceiving it through a lens of fitness rather than truth. I think there is only phenomenal consciousness. Only in other words, experience. Okay. But it's not, not, it's not, only your consciousness it's not only my consciousness it's not even only the sum total of the consciousnesses of all living beings it's consciousness at large if you will um, we can we should not anthropomorphize it too much uh, the word consciousness merely identify its type not the particulars of what's going on out there Whatever is going on out there, it's probably beyond our ability to cognize. It's not anthropomorphic at all, but it is of the same type as our conscious inner life. It's the same kind of stuff, if you mm. can speak of stuff at all beyond mere subjectivity. Yeah. C could you explain um, Donald Hoffman's <clears throat> idea of the desktop metaphor or perhaps your idea of the um, airplane instruments? Because I yeah. think that helps really frame... Uh, an understanding around this yeah so we know that pilots can fly by instruments they don't need to have a transparent windshield to see the world as it actually supposedly is outside the airplane um, even if you remove the transparent windows they still have the dashboard of instruments that convey accurate and actionable information about what's going on outside the airplane now we are pilots that were born in an airplane cockpit without windows all we have is the dashboard, which is the screen of perception. 
Um, and the dashboard serves as well. If we ignore it, we get run over by a car or a train, or we don't find food or a mate. Uh, so we should take the dashboard seriously. The mistake we make is that we think the world is the dashboard. And that's a terrible mistake because it leads to all kinds of inner contradictions immediately afterwards. You run into those contradictions immediately. Um, Donald Hoffman's notion is similar to the dashboard. He uses the desktop metaphor. And, and the, the conclusion is the same, but it goes like this. Evolution would never have favored the existence of living beings that perceive the world as it actually is. Those living beings would be swiftly driven to extinction. Why? Because it's not conducive to survival. Imagine that um, you could see your computer files for what they actually are. Each one of them is a set, it's a gazillion of microscopic switches open or closed inside a silicon chip. That's what your computer files actually are. If you would see them for what they actually are, you wouldn't even know which file is what, let alone be able to work with them or do anything with them. Um, so instead, we have the desktop metaphor provided by your operating system, Mac OS, Linux, Windows, whatever which shows you a computer file as a, as a little rectangle, a colored rectangle with a name underneath. Is that what the computer file actually is? Of course not, not even closed. The real computer file has absolutely nothing to do with that as far as form, shape, you know, appearance, um, but it's useless for us to see the reality of the computer file. We wouldn't be able to use the computer at all. The same applies to perception. Perception is a desktop metaphor. We don't see the world as it actually is. Uh, what we see is physicality, and physicality is the desktop. It is this metaphor, this interface, that conveys actionable, useful information about the world that uh, enables us to survive and reproduce. And so what is it that makes us <clears throat> separate from one another in this mind-at-large world? Why, why does a mind-at-large become disassociated and create an individual? So there are two questions there, the what and the why. Mm. So the what, the answer for um, how can one mind seem to be many, uh, we have that answer given to us empirically by nature. Um, and that's the process of dissociation, which since the turn of this century, we've known based on neuroimaging to be a real process. It really happens. One mind can seem to be many, it can acquire uh, different uh, centers of awareness, so to say, each with its own memories, characteristics, proclivities, uh, and so on, mental properties, and so on. So we just need to extrapolate that process that happens within a human mind to a spatially unbound mind, and then we can understand life to be the appearance or the representation on the dashboard of a dissociated process in the mind of nature. That's what life is. It's what dissociation in the mind of nature looks like when we observe it from the outside. That's what life is. And that's why I cannot read your thoughts or know what's going on in the galaxy of Andromeda, because I am dissociated from the other mental processes that are going on in the mind of nature, just like a person with multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder, which is the new name, um, uh, can have different centers of awareness that don't know what's going on in the other centers of awareness. And in, within a dream, and we know that, that's research from Harvard, within a dream, 
the different dissociated personalities of a person with a DID or dissociative identity disorder, they can see and interact with one another in the dream and experience the dream from their own unique perspectives. That happens to one quarter of patients hmm. with uh, DID, which is exactly what seems to be happening right now. If this is happening in the mind of nature, I can look at you and interact with you while both you and I are in the same subjective context or the same subjective field and essentially are still the same mind. So this is the what. This is, this is uh, how different minds can seem to appear within one mind. Now, why did this happen in nature? The easy answer is it's one of the potentialities of nature. It's one of the things that can happen in nature. And given enough time, it is bound to happen because it can happen. I mean, why does a volcano erupt? Why does a star go supernova? Because these things can happen. And given enough time, they happen. So dissociation in the mind of nature is one of the things that are possible to happen according to the basic templates of behavior of nature. In other words, the laws of nature. And given enough time, it was bound to happen somewhere. And lo and behold, it did. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, Alan Watts, the Alan Watts quote, where he says, as the ocean waves, the universe peoples. Exactly. Yeah. The mind of nature dissociates <laughs> under the right conditions. So if we are developing technology <clears throat> and we are creating computer simulations that have sensors and big data and the ability to, you know, find patterns in the data that we can't find, you know, within our limited capacity for computing, um, are our computer simulations or are our artificial intelligence systems giving us greater access to the the truth the you know the binary below the desktop or the world beyond the airplane um than we are perceiving i don't think so i don't see any direct reason why that should be the case Th these technologies facilitate life in other words, they enable us to fly the airplane better by instruments still. And, and that's very important. It's very useful, uh, very important, conducive to helping us solve our problems, um, living longer, better, more fulfilling lives. But I don't see them giving us better access to the thing in itself, to the world in itself, in the sense that technology, the development of science and technology is still filtered through the dashboard because it's based on perception. So even if we have you know, large telescopes and microscopes and oscilloscopes and n-scopes, <laughs> whatever, um, we still have to perceive the output of these instruments. So it's still all getting filtered through the dashboard, through those internal representations. You, I have to see the screen of an oscilloscope I have to put my eye uh, next to the lens of a, of a microscope or look through the tube of, of a telescope or on the mirror of a telescope. It all gets filtered through perception. So it, it's not helping us transcend perception at mm. all. But are those instruments maybe transcending it? Are we, are we not necessarily doing the transcending, but the instruments might be able to reach into that meta metaphysical world i guess and pull information from the realm of truth that we can then use to make more fit decisions keep in mind that that metaphysical world is this world it's the only world there is it, it it's not hiding 
in some spiritual realm mm. um, in the same sense that the world outside the airplane cockpit is the only world in which the airplane exists and the airplane is made of that world stuff uh, it's just a matter of perspective um, if you are inside the airplane's cockpit and you only have the dashboard yes you're limited to the dashboard but the dashboard itself exists in that one world our instruments exist in that metaphysical world as you refer to it which is the only world there is you see what i mean we, mm -hmm. we have to avoid the trap of thinking about reality in dualistic terms in in, in substance dualism that's not what i'm proposing at all uh, all i'm saying is that we have a particular mode of cognition of the only world that there is and we are part of that only world we are not separate from it i'm not talking about the world of the dead uh, 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 it's this world, but this world is one way uh, when perceived from its own perspective, the thing in itself, and it presents itself to us in another way when perceived through the dashboard that evolution has equipped us with. All instruments are always, only, ever in that one world, ever, only, always making measurements of that one world, but those measurements are filtered through the dashboard which is also part of that one world. So, so why is it that certain organisms or structures, such as the human brain, can develop something like metacognition while we look at other animals or even inert objects and we don't see the same kind of um, cognitive capacity? Well, it has been, evolutionarily speaking, very advantageous for us to develop metacognition, mm -hmm. to recognize ourselves as the subject of our experiences, as opposed to the experiences themselves. It enables uh, deliberation and premeditated planning, coordinated action. It facilitates communication enormously. Without metacognition, there is no language, mm -hmm. because there is no subject separate from the object. So, so there is no language in the way humans understand language um, so there was a tremendous evolutionary advantage for metacognition now having said that i acknowledge that there is an unsolved mystery still um, this was most uh, cogently uh, framed by ian tattersall from the american museum of natural history because paleoanthropology shows that um, uh, physiologically and genetically we have been modern humans for about two hundred thousand years um, but the ability to metacognize can only be traced back 30,000 years mm. uh, in the record, in the paleoanthropological record. And then you get in a situation where for 170,000 years, a species genetically capable of metacognition did not actually express metacognitive skill. So how come metacognition was fixed in our genome? Because it had no advantage. It changed nothing for 170,000 years. Why was that mutation fixed in our genome? That's a great mystery, I acknowledge that. But that today it obviously has a survival advantage, it, it's clear, we dominate the planet because we metacognize. Yeah, so it's, it's more just a result of the way the universe is unfolding and its support of structures that are more fit in the environment. It's, there's no real metaphysical or like motivational uh, truth that we're proclaiming here. It's just the natural unfolding of the universe towards fitness. 
That's the first line of answer. Yes. <laughs> Put a gun to my head. This is what I'm going to say. If my life depends on the accuracy of the answer, this is what I'm going to say. Now, it's impossible not to wonder whether there isn't more to this as well. Not an alternative explanation, but some extra seasoning, some extra spices to the explanation. And then the reason I say this is the fact that life takes a hold of any niche where it can could possibly take a hold acidic lakes uh, thermal vents in the crushing pressures of uh, ocean trenches uh, it's it's everywhere where it can possibly be there is an obvious natural impetus towards life and the evolution of life which makes you wonder if nature is a mind um, and in that case it's almost certainly not a metacognitive mind it's a very simple instinctive, spontaneous mind. But if it is a mind, it may still sense um, a favorable direction. Hmm. Uh, it may have some kind of teleological, instinctive teleological sense, like, oh, metacognition helped me get a grip on myself. So we want more of that. So more life everywhere. It, it's rich territory for speculation. And I'm, you know, in, this, in the sanctity and privacy of my own mind, I am open to that kind of speculation, but if I, if I had to, to give an answer upon which my life would depend, I would say it's just how nature spontaneously unfolds because nature is the way it is. Now, notice that I sense you use the word metaphysical to refer to something uh, beyond this world, and that's not the way I use the word metaphysical. Metaphysical just means that which underlies physics. Mm -hmm. and physics is behavior. Uh, physics is about modeling and predicting or anticipating the behavior of nature. Physics says nothing about what nature is. The scientific method cannot say anything definitive about what nature is because it only studies nature's behavior. Mm -hmm. That's what experiments do. We ask a question to nature and nature gives us an answer in the form of a certain manifest behavior. And metaphysics is the being behind the behavior. Is what it's, it's a a guided, educated speculation about what nature possibly is. What is that thing that behaves? What is nature? That's metaphysics. So it's not referring to another world. Right. It's right. referring to what this world is. Something like uh, the quantum foam, right, would be metaphysics. Like if that's a, a, a true theory. You're familiar with quantum foam? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it, Yes, but uh, and, and here is where things get muddled, especially by scientists who have absolutely no background in philosophy. They make a mess of this. It's the confusion between uh, convenient fiction mm. and metaphysical hypothesis. These are two different things. Convenient fiction is a way to think about nature's behavior. It doesn't matter whether that convenient fiction is true or not. For instance, uh, in the time of Newton, there was the convenient fiction that there was an invisible force that acted between bodies instantaneously and at a distance. Newton called it gravity. And it doesn't matter whether gravity really existed or not. Today, we think it doesn't exist, that the effect we see is because of a, some bending and twisting of the fabric of space-time. There is no such an invisible force acting instantaneously at a distance. If the sun would disappear now, it would take us eight minutes to, to, to notice it, for the Earth to sort of pop out of its uh, ellip elliptical orbit. Um, but because of that convenient fiction, Newtonian gravity, we managed to put a man on the moon. 
so this is what convenient fictions are for. It, it They enable us to predict the behavior of nature. It doesn't matter whether they are true or not. They are not ontological or metaphysical hypotheses. They are just theoretical fictions that are convenient. Um, a metaphysical hypothesis is when you say, what I'm putting forward is not only a predictive model, I'm making a statement about what nature actually is. Mm. Uh, so that goes one step further. The quantum foam, in principle, is just a convenient fiction. It does not make a statement about what nature is. It only says, well, nature behaves as though there were such a thing as a quantum foam. And that's all we need to make good mm -hmm. science, to take predict it, the results of experiments. To take it seriously, but not literally. Exactly. Yeah. So that's let's, Hoffman saying this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love his work. Um, so let's talk about other convenient fictions, perhaps. It, could this, could this uh, world that you're proposing, could it be simulated? Do you think the simulation hypothesis has any value? Normally, I don't know what people mean when they say simulation hypothesis. Uh, it could mean that uh, our entire natural universe, or what we might, might call the physical universe, is running in some kind of a machine in another universe. Mm -hmm. In that case, it doesn't solve any problem. It just postpones the solution. It just says, well, then those guys over there in that other universe, they have to figure out what their universe is about. So from that perspective, I find it a theoretically sterile hypothesis because it, it just postpones the problem. There's absolutely nothing. Um, another way to interpret it is when people say, well, the simulation hypothesis just tells us that the world isn't what it seems to be. I would agree with that, but I wouldn't call it a simulation hmm. for the following reason. Um, is it a simulation that on face value the sun is orbiting the earth. It's not a simulation. The appearance of the sun orbiting the earth is exactly what you would expect to see if the earth is orbiting the sun. So it, nature is not simulating the sun orbiting the earth. Nature is just being entirely self-consistent with its own being and its own behavior. You see the sun going from the horizon in the east to the horizon in the west, uh, because the earth is going around the sun and not the other way around. That we say, that we said in the past, that the sun orbits the earth is a false account. It's not a deception. It's not mm -hmm. a simulation. It's just a misunderstanding, a false account. I think we have a false account of nature today. When we talk about the world being physical, we are mistaking the dashboard for the thing that is measured by the airplane sensors. And that's a disastrous mistake because it leads to all kinds of insoluble problems, like the hard problem of consciousness, amongst others. Um, but does that mean that nature is simulating a physical world or deceiving us by pretending that the world is physical? No, for the same reason that it's not pretending that the sun is orbiting the earth. Uh, it's just our own false account of what's going on. You see what I mean? Yep, absolutely. Let's do one more convenient uh lie here uh, potentially because uh, i think it helps take us towards technology as well are you familiar with the integrated information theory mm -hmm. and what are your thoughts on that do you think you know it, it in a similar way i feel like it also starts with consciousness as the fundamental uh, maybe in a similar way as uh, analytical idealism but then it says that any physical substrate whether that's 
pipes and valves or, you know, any form of material can eventually become consciousness if its information becomes complex enough, correct? So do you, do you what do you think, what are your criticisms or support of that idea? So let me, let me start with the positives. There is an empirical side to IIT that I think is very useful, very important, and that has, that, that has to do with the phi threshold. When information is integrated beyond a certain value, they call it phi, um, then you have meta-consciousness. The subject becomes able to report on their own inner experiences. Um, and because this is empirically derived, there, there obviously is truth to it. That, right? It, it's empirical. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, if your theory contradicts empirical data, your theory is wrong. No, it doesn't go the other way around. Um, but I think there is a lot of naivete, philosophical naivete behind that. One, it, the first one is, and that's even psychological or neuroscientific naivete, which is surprising. Um, it's the mix up between consciousness and meta consciousness. Mm. Um, the five threshold is calibrated based on subjective reports, what people report they are experiencing. Um, but that's a correlate of meta-consciousness, not of consciousness. And the difference is um, to report an experience, you need one, to have the experience, and two, you need to know that you have the experience. Uh, if, you, if you're lacking either one of these two conditions, you do not report on the experience. Uh, which means that you may have an experience that you can't report because you don't know that you have the experience. And that happens all the time. Uh, we are not reporting to ourselves the experience of breathing in and out, of blinking our eyes, and yet we have these experiences all the time. Uh, um, in, in psychology, we know that to report an experience, you need to re-represent the experience internally. There's a famous or hopefully famous paper by Jonathan Schooler, 2002, on the dissociations between uh, experience and re-representation, or the difference between consciousness and meta-consciousness. So phi is the threshold of meta-consciousness. If phi is not reached, it means that there is no meta-consciousness, but there may still be consciousness. Consciousness, there, it may still be all there is. Uh, so that's the first philosophically naive aspect of it. And the other one, which is unfortunately very common today, is what you hinted at. It is to ignore the substrate. Uh, we don't make that mistake in any other area of scientific or philosophical inquiry. We know that what we are looking at is essentially its substrate. Uh, if I, I, I like to use this metaphor often, you probably heard it already. Um, if I simulate kidney function on my computer down to the molecular level, that doesn't mean that my computer will pee on my desk. Because the simulation of the thing, no matter how accurate it is, is not the thing simulated. The substrate is different, and that makes all the difference. But when it comes to consciousness, because we took this wrong turn and we we mistake the dashboard for the physical world, everything becomes wild, and then any nonsense hypothesis become equally implausible. Mm -hmm. And then we take them to, to be plausible. So uh, uh, this idea that the internet can have a private conscious life of its own arises from a mix of uh, uh, unexamined assumptions and unjustified extrapolations that violate rationality. Um, but our culture has manufactured 
plausibility for these irrational steps. Um, it, it's all over the media. Uh, uh, series like Black Mirror uh, manufactured artificial plausibility for all kinds of nonsensical hypotheses. And it, this is a cultural madness mm -hmm. <laughs> that one day we will see through. So speaking of substrates, when we first exchanged emails, you made it very clear that you don't believe that artificial consciousness can ever be generated from silicon. And I'm wondering why, what is it that necessarily makes the biochemicals and the electrical signals in the human body capable of having this experience while something like you know, pipes and valves not able, able of having this experience. Why can't we replicate the same complexity, even if it would take a machine the size of the entire planet with water valves and pipes? Why can't that become conscious in the same way that the, the human brain is? The problem is in the very premise of your question, which mm. is completely understandable because that's how our culture has framed the problem. The premise is we something creates consciousness consciousness is the effect of some kind of physical arrangement therefore if the brain can do it why why can't something else also do it well let me first answer it by making the same mistake so let, let me even acknowledge what i don't agree with which is that you can generate consciousness um, if the brain can do it based on carbon DNA, metabolism, ATP burning, protein folding, uh, electrochemical firings, action potentials. If the brain can do that based on all these things, you have no reason to think that a silicon-based machine should be able to do the same thing because these are completely different things. Uh, uh, it requires a tremendous degree of abstraction to find a commonality between a silicon-based uh, artificial neural network and a moist, warm, wet brain. These are completely different processes, mechanisms going on. So that one does it, why should it imply that the other, mm -hmm. a completely different something, should do it too? The, 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 it's a total non sequitur. Ignoring the substrate is a total non-sector. Now, let me give you the answer I believe is the correct one. Consciousness is not created. It's that within which everything is created, but not your personal consciousness. I'm talking about a spontaneous, spatially unbound field of subjectivity underlying all nature. So when we talk about artificial consciousness, what we are asking is not the creation of consciousness. What we are asking for is the creation of a private dissociated a segment of that natural consciousness. How do you induce private, dissociated conscious in your life? So you're not creating consciousness, you're creating a dissociation. Um, human beings are dissociated uh, aspects of this universal field of mentation. I think that's what life is. Life is the extrinsic appearance of dissociation. It's what dissociation looks like when observed from the outside, from across its dissociative boundary. It's the dashboard representation. It's the icon on, on the dashboard, on, on, on the desktop mm -hmm. uh, of dissociation. Uh, and then the question is, okay, what do we need to do to artificially induce dissociation in the mind of nature? Well, 
the way to go about it is, is to look at the known examples of dissociation. I have every reason to think that you have private conscious in your life because your behavior is analogous to mine in every way. Um, I have reason to think my cat is a dissociated aspect of the mind of nature because its behavior gives me every reason to believe that that is so. You, moreover, my cat is analogous to me in that both of us are metabolizing human beings. Even an amoeba is a metabolizing human beings, metabolizing beings. Even an amoeba is a metabolizing being, totally different from my, from from me in form, scale, everything. But it also does transcription, protein folding. It burns ATP. It does mitosis. You know, these are enormous commonalities right under the surface. So. For me, we will, I believe we will succeed in creating artificially private conscious in our life, but the result of that will be something that metabolizes hmm. because that's what seems to correlate with private conscious in our life as far as empirical evidence can tell us. Um, in other words, the creation of, the artificial creation of private conscious in our life goes by the name abiogenesis. Mm. It is one and the same thing as the artificial creation of life. Do I think we will get there? I think we will. But the result will not be a silicon computer. The result will be something that does transcription, protein folding, and burns ATP, and does mitosis. Be because we have no reason to think that something totally else and a completely different substrate should also be the extrinsic appearance of that phenomenon. You, you see what I mean? I combustion do. tends to, to correlate with flames. Flames tend to be what <laughs> combustion looks like. Why should I think that something that doesn't look at all like flames, why should I think that a waterfall should also be the extrinsic appearance of combustion? It's completely arbitrary. So for the exactly for exactly the same reason, I think we have every reason to think that uh, something living will be what an artificially created being with private conscious in their life will look like, and not a silicon computer. So because these we, are... yeah, so we may get there, but it will be through bioengineering, not through artificial intelligence. That's what you're kind of saying. Yes, I do believe in artificial intelligence in silicon. Sure. But intelligence and consciousness consciousness are two very different things. Intelligence is clever data processing. You can measure it objectively from the outside. And and so with something like an artificial intelligence, do you think it's possible that we'll at least get to the philosophical zombie point of view um, or place with AI where it will have every every characteristic that we could conceive of consciousness, but it will never actually have the consciousness? Yes. It will be in consciousness, but it will not be conscious in and of itself. It will exist in consciousness for the same reason that everything in nature exists in consciousness, but it won't be conscious in the sense of having its own private inner life. Fair enough. So it so will let, be a zombie, yes. So let's talk about the larger implications of this then, because you, you've mentioned that the dominant belief in physicalism uh, is the cause for things like material consumerism and that there are other cultural implications. What are some of the other cultural implications that result from viewing the world as a physicalist rather than viewing it as, you know, a field of consciousness? I wouldn't go as far as to say that physicalism, 
physicalism is the cause for our uh, yes. dysfunctional behaviors, but it, it certainly plays with it. It, it. it correlates with it and it feeds it at least. Um, if all there is is matter, this thing that is outside mind, but it's the only thing that endures because mind is just a sort of ephemeral side effect of temporary constructs of matter, then the only conceivable meaning of life is to accumulate material stuff because everything else is ephemeral. Um, if m our minds are somehow created by our physical bodies, as opposed to the physical body being a cognitive representation in mind of itself, um, then medicine is like car mechanics. Mm. The body is something that needs to be intervened on from the outside like a car mechanic would do and that leaves out entire avenues for healthcare that we ignore now like um, we know that the placebo effect not only happens it's incredibly effective but we don't try to use it we don't try to leverage it why because it doesn't fit with this physicalist paradigm so funding is not produced to to try to understand what, what are the mechanisms that are operating we just, we just shrug it off. We say, oh, yeah, it, it happens. It's massive. We don't understand how it happens, but yeah, just one of those things. Well, no, it's not just one of those things. That's nature screaming at us. There is, an, there is a very promising avenue for healthcare intervention that you guys are not using at mm -hmm. your own detriment. So that's another change. Yet another, and that's a big one. Uh, we are meaning-seeking animals. Uh, a fulfilling life is a meaningful life. Um, physicalism has um, vacuum cleaned all meaning out of life, sucked it away, yeah. because it says that all there is is appearances, uh, physical stuff, appearances. And those appearances have supposedly standalone existence. Well, now we know from physics, physics they don't, but that's what most people think that they do. And then they are all there is to it. So there is no meaning to life. Life mm -hmm. is very shallow and superficial. There is no extra dimension of depth some in some sense behind physical appearances that would confer intrinsic meaning to existence um, under idealism there is because under idealism the physical world is a superficial appearance of something going on that is projecting that appearance from behind there is an extra yeah. depth an extra dimension of meaning and mystery to life and uh, your mind as a dissociated complex of the mind of nature comes to an end as a dissociated complex, but the contents of your mind, the insights you accumulate throughout a lifetime of potentially a lot of suffering, upon your death, the end of the dissociation, they are released into a broader cognitive context. So the meaning of life is to collect insights, not shoes. Mm. And those insights don't end when you die. They are actually seated in a much broader cognitive context. So life becomes fulfilling, becomes meaningful, uh, you probably healthier. Uh, everything changes. When people say, oh, Bernardo, your analytic idealism is just like physicalism, it's just semantics, because you also say there is an external world beyond our individual minds. Yes, but that doesn't mean that the implications are the same. The implications are completely different. And I just named three. Uh, mm -hmm. Once I wrote a book in part eight of that book, I, I think I named, I don't, 10 very important different implications. Yeah. Do you do you have any like specific ways that you would see technology um, 
change its innovation, like what kind of ways we innovate or what goals we have with technology if we shifted to something like analytical idealism as our dominating philosophy? Absolutely. So in healthcare science, mm -hmm. uh, we would uh, develop methods to more objectively investigate the impact of psychological health on so-called physical health, because physical health is just what psychological health, health looks like when observed from across its dissociative boundary. So you would develop uh, new science in the, in the direction that today you would call talk therapy. Mm. Um, that may encompass techniques that previous civilizations used, um, like uh, shamanism. Uh, you know, all those antiques of the shaman blowing smoke and dancing, you know, you know, fireworks and whatever. All that stuff is to induce the placebo effect. Mm. It's not that that's magical in and of itself. It is magical because in the eyes of the perceiver, that thing has power and that's all it takes. So medical science could... Um, it, advance in a completely new and promising front, physics would become a lot more comprehensible because in foundations of physics today, every single experiment based on Bell's and Leggett's inequalities show us that physical entities do not, stand do not have standalone reality. They only come into existence upon measurement. But because we think physicality is all there is, then what is it that you measure? Because the thing that you measure must precede the, the outcome of measurement. So if physical stuff is the outcome of measurement and it's all there is, then what is it that you measure? And people just tilt, they go haywire, cognitive dissonance, and they throw their arms up and become new agers. Uh, that, that would end because you would now realize that there is a world that is measured. It's just not physical. Mm. Physicality is the cognitive representation you form upon observing that world. But in and of itself, that world is mental. It's not characterizable in terms of meters and kilograms. Uh, how long is your thought? How many meters? Uh, yeah. How many kilograms does your emotion weigh? Uh, uh, th these physical parameters are descriptions of the cognitive representation of the world. In other words, the appearance, what the world looks like upon observation. But as it is in itself, it's mental. And if people understand that, many of the paradoxes of paradoxes of quantum mechanics would dissolve and therefore we would be able to make more progress instead of doing more Bell and Leggett type uh, experiments for uh, another 45 years. <laughs> it's yeah. been going on for 45 years because we don't believe the results. So we refine the experiment and do it again and darn the result is the same. No, something is wrong and we refine it more. 45 years doing this shit. I mean, let's move on. Come on, yeah. believe what nature is telling us and let's move on. And also neuroscience. Um, we know now that psychedelics have this mind boggling effect they have by reducing brain activity. They don't increase brain activity anywhere like we thought until 10 years ago. Um, if we develop techniques for selectively impairing certain aspects of our brain activity, what window would it give us into mm. a sort of non-dissociated perspective into nature? Not into another world. I'm talking about this world. Yeah. But this world seen directly and not through the mediation of a dashboard of dials. Um, so that is another uh, avenue. Yeah. I mean, I know like um, the flow state and certain psychedelic states tend to shut down the part of the brain um, that computes the boundary of your physical form and which is why we often say we experience a sense of oneness 
um, during those states. You can have uh, one seemingly uh, innocent uh, explanation like this for any one of those results individually. Mm. But when you put them together, all physicalist explanations become uh, uh, non-viable. Mm. And this is actually recognized by physicalists now because they put forward a sort of unifying physicalist hypothesis to account for this. And it, it is ludicrous. It is ridiculous. I don't think we have the time to go into that. Yeah, but no it's one worries. of those things that in, in any other science, papers would not be accepted. Reviewers would be furious saying, how dare you send this, propose this crap to me? This is beyond implausible. But because we are confused about consciousness, we hail these nonsensical results as major advancements. Mm -hmm. And, and it's kind of as we wrap up here, do you think um, social media and the internet in general, or just where technology is going now, do you think that it is changing how we think about physicalism or just the nature of reality? Because, you know, with something like social media, we're now starting to interact with people predominantly, you know, even in the way we're kind of doing now, often uh, with people as kind of these faceless and disembodied agents that are all connected to the same feed of information. So we're, st we're kind of, I guess, spending more of our life in a world that has this sense of disassociated connectedness? <laughs> I think social media is an amplifier. It amplifies the crap and it amplifies promising new hypotheses as, as well. Um, the, net, the net effect may be positive because people putting forward what, forward what I'm putting forward now, um, now I have mainstream media attention, but until a few years ago I didn't, uh, I would probably never... Mm have been known, I mean, I'm, I'm very little known, but I, I would probably be unknown, completely unknown. So I have, I, I owe a lot to social media because it creates these alternative channels. But at the same time, social media sometimes also says, well, Bernard is some kind of new age nut, uh, because it also amplifies the new age nutness that try to co-opt what I'm saying. Yeah. And there is a lot of co-opting of what I'm saying. And I often have to sort of very actively disclaim what people are trying to make out of what I'm saying. Um, so yeah, it amplifies the shit as well. I don't know whether the net effect is good or not. Probably it is good, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we come to a close here, because I know we're reaching our, our time that we set aside, are there any thoughts that you'd like to leave us with? Maybe any thoughts on uh, analytical idealism, any thoughts on technology, anything you'd like to promote or tell us about anything at all? I think the core idea behind transhumanism mm. is one to be nurtured. And that is the idea of AI singularity, the notion that we can create an artificially intelligent entity that is better at creating the next version of itself than we are. And, and then the next version of itself is even better at creating a yet better version of itself uh, and that process could sort of achieve critical mass and lead to a entity that is intelligent beyond our ability to comprehend. I think that's not a nutty notion. It may be practically very difficult because it may require computers the size of the planet um, or resources beyond our ability to to make available to you know to to that process of recursive 
uh, increase in intelligence, um, but theoretically it's not incoherent. The problem is when we tie to that our repressed religious impetus. Mm. Um, because since we killed God in the late 19th century, um, we try to project our religious impetus in other forms. And singularitarianism has turned into a religion, a way to bring meaning back to life and have, have a kind of God that, uh, that is consistent with nonsensical physicalist assumptions, bring back, back religion. And the moment we do that is the moment we, we pollute what is otherwise a coherent, level-headed level hypothesis, at least theoretically, even if in practice it may not be achievable for a very long time because of resources, Theoretically, it is coherent, and we, I think we, we pollute it with our own nonsense when we project um, uh, our wish fulfillment, our, our repressed uh, need for meaning, for salvation uh, onto that. And, and we entertain the notion that we can create some form of God that will save us all from ourselves. That, that's just utter nonsense. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a, a narrow path, very difficult to navigate, because if you make a mistake to the left or, left or to the right, and you are deep in murky waters of uh, repressed religious impulses expressing themselves in a very non-healthy way. I'm not saying that religious impulses are not healthy. I think they are very healthy. Uh, but when we distort them and project them in a form that is internally contradictory with themselves, then they become dysfunctional and not functional. Let's reserve transcendence to real transcendence and not to mechanisms uh, that we think we can create at some point. But uh, look, I, I have more time. I, I yeah. was in a hurry because I, you yeah. told me that this is a one-hour episode. So I, I, I don't want to rush you. I mean, I would love to unpack that more. I mean... You know, one we of the can continue. It's okay. Okay. Yeah. One one of the thoughts that I I had, as you were saying that, and it I don't know if it makes as much sense now because of how well you've under um, explained your theories, but do you worry that uh, the transhuman trajectory could cut us off from consciousness? Well, you can't remove it because the field of consciousness is where all existence happens. Exactly. Uh, we, we can become <laughs> ignorant of the truth of the field. That yeah. can happen. So while planted in the field, we can become ignorant of the truth of the field in the same way that fish uh, is igno are, are ignorant of water. Uh, they are immersed in it from all sides. Uh, but um, I do think there can be a lot of harm, personal harm, because anything that is mistaken can become dysfunctional. Um, if you look, for instance, at the latest season of Black Mirror and now this notion of uploading consciousness and downloading consciousness and people suffering within a silicon chip and creating copies of themselves, uh, that notion that at root is just mistaken, is nonsensical, mm -hmm. um, it leads to a kind of um, how do you call it when you have thread, you buy thread in a row to knit, mm. a, a little ball of rolled up thread? Yeah. Um, it, it's like that. And if you start pulling on the thread, you can start pulling all kinds of 
dysfunctional and nonsensical implications from it. Like there is a philosopher in, U in the UK, I, I'm not past value judgment about him because I have nothing positive to say about him, but he spends his philosophical life thinking about you know the ethics of uh, artificially conscious machines. Now, it, it's like spending your life thinking about the, the ethics of uh, leprechauns. I, I, I don't know. It, it, it's, <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it can lead you into a worldview that is both wrong and dysfunctional and doesn't serve you well at all uh, because it's just based by total nonsense, utter bullshit. Um, and, and I think that is the risk. Not only that, now an even bigger risk. If we project our natural, intrinsic, uh, in, uh, religious impulse on the wrong place, for as long as we are feeding that projection, we will not give expression to that religious impulse. Mm -hmm. It will be corralled into a space of nonsense and it will never become truly fulfilling. It will never really express itself in us. Because the religious impulse is based on something that is very obvious and non-polemical at all. The cognitive apparatus of a monkey that has been walking this planet for just 200,000 years and can think symbolically for only 30,000 years. Our intellect is 30,000 years old. It's not yesterday. It's a blink of an eye ago. To think that that cognitive apparatus has already evolved enough to comprehend every salient aspect of nature when it comes to the meaning of life is mm. just absolutely preposterous. It's beyond that, nonsensical. But then that runs us into a dangerous place, right? Because if we take that incomplete understanding and we program it into something like a AGI and in, into a general artificial intelligence, we're creating something that's very powerful perhaps beyond our control in some ways that has a really flawed understanding of the nature of reality, especially if it operates in purely physicalistic way and maybe lacks some of the wisdom of, of, you know, idealism. I don't see this as any different from any other engineering problem. Um, mm. When we build nuclear power stations, we try to make sure that um, it, it can't kill us. And sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. Um, by and large, I think we get it right today. You know, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, and Chernobyl were, were very old designs with active safety, stuff that we would never do today. Um, when I put myself inside an aluminum tube and fly across the Atlantic, I trust that uh, whoever engineered that did it in such a way that that aluminum tube is not going to kill me. Um, creating an AI that controls many aspects of our lives is exactly the same kind of problem. You engineer something and you try to make sure that in the process of functioning, uh, that thing doesn't kill you. So I, I don't see this as any different at all from the engineering safety measures we take about skyscrapers, airplanes, and nuclear power stations. You, you have to put limits and safety controls and mechanisms to ensure that that thing will never be a, a constitute a danger to us. Uh, it's more of the same. It's trivial stuff. <laughs> but are you concerned with that uh, artificial intelligence somehow, I guess, going beyond its constraints or acting in an unexpected way because of bad, you know, it's not just, I guess, 
bad engineering, but the ability for the engineered thing to transcend its engineering, I guess, is my question. If you plug your computer out of the internet, if you unplug mm -hmm. your computer, it can't be hacked. There is no, I don't know, hyperdimensional spiritual realm through which anything can uh, connect to your computer and hack it, right? Mm -hmm. We pull it off the plug, the hacking is, is over. Yeah. The same thing for any AI. You just have to put the correct safety measures in place such that however intelligent it may become, it just does not have the means uh, of creating an impact beyond what it was engineered to have. It, yeah. it, it's the same kind of thing. What, yeah. what do you think about the black box, though? What's happening in the black box? Do you think that that's going to lead to any, uh, you know, unex really bad unexpected consequences for us? I think a intelligent computer of 50 years from now will process data in a way that we are not able to comprehend even with the best visualization tools at hand. Um, it will recognize patterns that we just cannot recognize and mm. to behave in ways that we may not understand. But we are still in control in the sense that we control whatever means it has to act out its intelligence. If, the, if it does not have the channels to act out, then it is contained. I, I think that people think this is a different problem because they implicitly think that an intelligent computer is some kind of conscious being with an inner life and emotions mm. and agendas of its own. And that's exactly what I deny. An intelligence computer will always and ever be a mechanism, just a very, very, very large, a very, very, very complex mechanism whose inner workings we may not be able to understand, but it still has boundaries uh, in, in the sense that the means with which it, it can express its inner processing are limited by us. It, it's just an engineering problem, complex as it may be. We are not talking about metaphysics here we yeah. are not talking about some oh my god some some creature some you know new intelligence uh, a lot of computer scientists in ai have what i call uh, womb envy you know the freudian penis envy that yeah. uh, women are envious of that extra part of a male body um some men are, have womb envy they can't bring a conscious being into the world uh, and they, they envy that, so they find a proxy for that, uh, uh, creating an artificially conscious being. It's, it's kind of a motherhood, repressed uh, desire to, towards motherhood or something. Uh, it's all romantic stuff, yeah. but it's nonsensical. It's a mechanism, intelligent, complex, a mechanism. And, and, and we have to think about safety for about, uh, uh, around that mechanism as we think about safety around a nuclear power station. Yeah, it's just that there is nothing more to it. It's not romantic. It's not spiritual. It's not religious or metaphysical. <laughs> well, as we get into things like bioengineering, you know, which you talked about potentially being an avenue towards tapping into consciousness. Uh, how, what are your thoughts around things like um, regulation and policy that control that? I mean, if we're tapping into 
something as profound as consciousness, do you think we should be very careful here? Or do you think it should be largely unregulated and we should let, you know, biohackers and bioengineers throughout the world play with it in their garage? No, I think we have ethical responsibilities when it comes to conscious entities, mm. not entities in consciousness alone, but entities with a private conscious inner life of their own. I think we do have moral responsibility about that. If you are creating beings that are amenable to suffering, uh, we have to to bite the bullet of ethical responsibility and have controls. That said, history shows that whatever can be done will eventually be done by human beings. Controls are not. So we have to be prepared for that too and not naively think that we can stop these things from being done. No, they will be done. Um, but they should be controlled. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, nature is very morally neutral. Mm. You could say morally ambiguous. I prefer morally neutral. It has no qualms about instigating tremendous suffering. You know, predators only live by killing. Mm -hmm. uh, and usually that killing is, is not fast and comfortable. <laughs> it's prolonged and very painful when it's happening all the time. Your, your backyard is a bloodbath. Ants <laughs> cutting up earthworms are alive all the time. Um, so the responsibility is ours. Um, nature is spontaneous and morally neutral. Uh, we have to get our act together and understand the consequences of what we are doing. Um, but whatever can be done will be done. It just has to be controlled so it's not done in an in an unbounded way. It doesn't mm -hmm. become overwhelming. It will happen, but even then still should be controlled, I think. It's our responsibility in, in nature. Yeah, g given your extensive background in technology and artificial intelligence, what do you think about our current trajectory and where we're going? And, and would you change anything if you could uh, in terms of what we're currently doing? I think we are overemphasizing the, the, the hard sciences. Mm. Um, and dangerously de-emphasizing the humanities. We think that uh, it's all about pragmatism, so it's all about engineering. And even when we do physics and chemistry, the more basic science, sciences, it is for the sake of engineering. Um, um, because it's commercially more relevant and sells more stuff and solves more short-term problems. The issue I see with this is that uh, we are losing our humanity. Um, because if all we do is mechanisms and all we see is mechanisms, then we will regard ourselves as mechanisms too. And, 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 and that would be a, a tragedy. It's a tragedy happening already. It's an ongoing process. Neglecting the humanities is neglecting our very nature, um, which is a reflection of the nature of nature because we are part of nature. So if there is anything I would change is I would re-emphasize um, the humanities, mm -hmm. history. History is tremendously de-emphasized. We think we are born in a vacuum without a past, without a future. It's like a page of a book. You read that page, you can't read the page that comes next or the page that came before. So you're like, you're, you're, you're floating thin air. It's Kundera's unbearable lightness of being. Yeah. It, it, it allows us to evade responsibility because now we are not part of a historical trajectory. We don't owe um, 
um, a, a duty to our ancestors, neither do we owe something to the generations that come after us, so we destroy the planet. Um, that, that has to be changed. Mm. We need to understand the historical context in which we are immersed. If we are to have a hope of understanding the meaning of our lives, uh, we need to be more aware of what we are, of our psychology, uh, social dynamics, uh, the, the humanities. We are human. Art. Yeah. And it, Art feels, like now, if, it feels like if we don't appreciate those things, we're we're risking what you talked about before, right? Where if we ignore the placebo and don't investigate what's happening with the placebo, we're actually avoiding an opportunity to gain a better understanding of reality and instead going down a, a path that leads to a dead end. Exactly. And look, I, I'm speaking from an extremely egocentric perspective, a human egocentric perspective, because if these things I'm describing as dysfunctional, if they take hold and continue to grow, the only losing party in this process is us. Mm -hmm. we, we talk about destroying the planet, even I just said that, but the planet will never be destroyed. Even if we engage in total nuclear warfare, give it a million years and the planet will be a green garden again. Yeah. Um, even humanity as a species, Homo sapiens sapiens will continue to exist because there are always the Inuit, the, the, the African Bushmen, the Australian Aboriginals who have the skills to live without technology. What we are going to kill is our civilization. It's us. So I'm talking about saving us. I'm not talking about altruism and, and, and mushy uh, loving kindness. And I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about this shit at all. I'm talking about how do we guarantee our comfort <laughs> and fulfilling lives for ourselves? And if, if we continue to ignore our humanity and only apply our cognition, our abilities, our skills, and our resources to mechanisms, which is what AI is, mm -hmm. it's a mechanism. It's something that in essence is no different from a big construction of pipes, taps, mm -hmm. and water. <laughs> it's the same kind of stuff. If we continue to just see mechanisms, when we look in the mirror, we will see a mechanism. And yeah. we are the only ones who will lose tremendously from that. We lose, we lose ourselves in that process. And what we would do is engage in more addictive behavior. Drinking more, watching more nonsensical television, eating more sugar, um, and dying early yeah, by suicide often enough. Yeah, it makes me think of a Sadhguru. He did a talk at Google, if you're familiar with him, and he said in traditional Indian culture, they have kids do a chant that identify them with the universe, which makes me think of the mind at large. And until they can show that they have a deep understanding of that chant, they don't give them education and knowledge because knowledge becomes a weapon. And if you identify only as a self and not as a part of a collective before you're educated, then you'll hurt everyone around you because you won't, you know, have you won't have that identification with others. And I feel like that's kind of what we're doing now in a way with with what you're talking about here is because we don't understand that we're part of the mind at large and, and connected in that universal way. We take these individualistic approaches to the development of our society and of our technology. I, I heard of Sad, Sadhguru. Yeah, I heard yeah. the name. I, I don't know much more about him. Um, of course, the Indian philosophical tradition is much older uh, mm. than the Western one. 
um, it also makes a lot more use of, use of symbolism and allegory. So it, it's not unambiguous. It's, it's a difficult tradition to truly understand because of so much built-in uh, ambiguity. Um, I, I would warn against, however, uh, elevating Indian society today, putting it in a pedestal, because you know it's also one of the most materialistic societies in the world today yeah. as well. And, and so is China. You know, in China, God is money. Mm -hmm. uh, their God is money. I've been to China many times, and uh, at least in the great cities like Shanghai and Beijing, uh, their God is money. Um, so the, the virus of nihilistic Western physicalism has spread around the world, uh, and it has taken root. It's a pandemic uh, right now, you know, well, well encrusted uh, pandemic. Uh -huh. So I wouldn't uh, romanticize it too much. I think. Uh, um, the problem is everywhere in the world. There is nowhere to look and say, we should imitate them. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the way to go. I think the way to go is self-honesty, mm -hmm. is digging into our hidden assumptions, coming closer to ourselves. Because if you see the humanity in you, it's unavoidable to, to, to see the humanity in every, everyone else. Um, we alienate others when we are alienated from ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that is that danger of projecting our religious impulse on singularitarianism or transhumanism, because um, instead of projecting soul on the machine, what we would do is incorporate the machine in the soul mm -hmm. and pretend that the soul is a machine and that we are mechanisms and live according to the implications of this uh, idea. And the moment it alienates us from ourselves, it alienates us from everybody else, because then everybody else is a mechanism. Is there a, a, a form of praxis or some kind of organization or anything at all that you think would be a way that somebody right now could go against what you call the Western nihilistic obsession with physicalism? Is there a way that, like any direct ways, you know, you said self-honesty, but are there other ways that you see as like paths that somebody could practically implement in their life now or an organization that they could support or any, any, is there anything like that? I don't think there are the seven steps towards no. truth. <laughs> I don't think, I know if preaching helped 2000 years of Christianity would have solved a few problems. It didn't. Um, so my preaching doesn't help. I think th this process comes from within the individual. Mm. Um, so the best you can do is trust the process in you. Trust mm. the process. Don't uh, don't dismiss things that don't fit with your current worldview, because every worldview ever held by human beings throughout history has proven to be nonsensical. Every mainstream worldview has proven to be nonsensical in one way or another. Uh, it is extraordinarily unlikely that you have gotten it right. Mm -hmm. So uh, internalize this awareness of this fact, um, because that will make it, it will, it will make you open yourself up to whatever natural process is trying to come into the world through you and then trust that process. Uh, preaching is not going to do it. Uh, some people, there are collective initiatives. Essentia Foundation is the foundation I yeah. lead. We try to make information available, but we cannot grab people by their ears and force them to read our stuff. We are very aware that we can't do that. So we 
light up a beacon and we hope people will see and come in that direction and have a look and with critical eyes. And if they don't, then they don't, you know, it's, uh, we will see what nature will do through us. Well, certainly we'll, uh, we'll make sure we add uh, the links to Essentia in the show notes so everyone can find that beacon more easily. Bernardo, thanks so much for taking the time. I know it's getting late there and uh, I really appreciate you chatting with us. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for having me.